Okay, please turn to Psalm 119, 119, verse 129. Psalm 119, and we'll read verses 129 to 136 this morning. Psalm 119, verse 129. There the word of Christ says this. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me after your manner with those who love your name. Establish my footsteps in your word, and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of water, because they do not keep your law. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we confess that your testimonies are wonderful. Lord, that they are filled with such wonderful spiritual truths. And yet, Lord, we confess as well that we are so foolish and so ignorant in our natural state, in our flesh, that we cannot even understand these things unless you teach us and guide us. And so we ask today for your spirit to be upon us, Lord, that he would interpret spiritual truths to those who are spiritual people. Lord, that we might understand your word. Lord, that we might keep it and walk in its pathway. So, Father, grant to us greater faith, greater understanding, Lord, a greater obedience. And, Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we remember that Psalm 119 is a prayer to God, right? The prophet is constantly asking God to give him understanding, to open his eyes, to enlarge his heart, to give him a greater and greater desire for the word of God, right? This prayer is impossible for an unbeliever to pray in a genuine way. An unbeliever does not think the way that the prophet does and has no desire for the word of the Lord. But the prophet David is not an unbeliever. He is a redeemed man, a righteous man, by conversion, who by the Holy Spirit has been given a new heart from God. He no longer has a dead, stony heart. He has a new heart, a new nature that longs for the word of God. Like a newborn baby craves the mother's milk, so the prophet craves the milk of the word of God. It says in 1 Peter 2, 1-3, it says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The longing that the Apostle Peter speaks about is clearly evidenced in the life of the prophet David as manifested in Psalm 119. This is the prayer of one who, like a newborn baby, craves the pure spiritual milk of the word. And this longing must also be evident in our lives. This is not something only for the prophet. This is not something only for the apostles or something only for the special few Christians in the world. But rather, this prayer, this desire, must be found in us just as it was found in the prophet David. Though we are not prophets, a prophet like he was, though we do not have the office that he possessed, we do have a nature like his. 
And we do have redemption as he had, therefore we should be like him. We should imitate him. It says in James 5, 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Though Elijah was a prophet in terms of his office, in terms of his nature, he was a man just like we are. And he prayed fervently, and God answered his prayer. And the point of James 5 is, just as he was a man with a nature like yours, and he prayed to God, and God answered him, so you should pray to God. And if you pray like Elijah, then God will answer you as well. Well, in like manner, we ought to pray and desire and long for the word of God like the prophet David, because he also is a man with a nature like ours. And the way that he lived is the way that we must live. His prayer should be our prayer. His desires should be our desires. So we must have this desire, and this is what the psalm is teaching us. Psalm 119.129 says, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul observes them. God's testimonies are wonderful. The Bible is filled with spiritual truths, with the very wisdom of God that surpasses any of the wisdom of this world. The world's wisdom is base, it is useless, it is vile, it is detestable. But God's wisdom found in His Word is wonderful. It says in Psalm 119, verse 118, He said there, Open my eyes, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Open my eyes, I want to see wonderful things. I know that your Word contains wonderful things. It contains majestic things. It contains great things. And I want you to open my eyes, God, so that I can see these things, so that I can comprehend them, and that I might believe the wonderful things in your Word. The spiritual man, by the Spirit of God, sees wonderful spiritual truths in the spiritual law of God. We remember in Romans 8.14 it says that the law is spiritual. God's Word is a spiritual book that can only be understood by spiritual people. And this is what happens for the child of God. He reads, he studies, he meditates, he memorizes the Word of God. And as he does, God opens his eyes more and more and more so that he sees wonderful things from the law of God. He grows in his understanding. He gains greater clarity and conviction regarding the wonderful Word of God. He sees it as majestic. He sees how good its righteousness is. It is wonderful to him, more so than any other book in the world. The unbeliever, he's not like this at all. He finds the Bible dull. It's boring to him. It's loathsome to him. It's a drag to him. It's tedious and tiresome for him to read it. It is toilsome labor for him to have to read the Bible, to hear the Bible taught, to sit through a sermon. He can't endure it. He gets nothing out of it. And even if he does understand something here and there, conceptually, he doesn't like it. He kicks against it. He's constantly seeking to undermine and contradict the Word of God. But a true believer is not like this, a redeemed man. He isn't like that at all. He finds wonderful things in the law of God, as he comes to understand more and more of the truths of Scripture. And he desires greater understanding, a greater understanding of the Word of God, the true, simple, plain interpretation of Scripture. That's what he wants. He doesn't want the latest, greatest ideas. 
He doesn't want some newfangled, speculative, fanciful interpretation of the Bible, as many people are prone to. No one's ever said this before, but this new teacher, he's saying it, and we need to listen to him. Well, if no one's ever said it before, that's probably going to be a problem, right? We probably don't want to listen to that guy at all. We don't want new interpretations. We want the old, simple, plain interpretation of the prophets and the apostles and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what the man of God wants. He wants to understand the true interpretation of the Bible. This is how the prophet David looks at the Word of God. A book filled with wonderful, amazing truths. Wonderful truths that he cannot find in any other book in this present world. The content of the Bible is superlative, right? It is divine, right? This is one of the proofs of the divinity of the Bible, that the Bible is indeed the Word of God, the wonderful truths found within it. How could any man, much less any sinful man, ever invent such wonderful truths as those found in the Bible? How could any sinful man create out of his own mind laws as holy and righteous as those laws found in the Bible? No sinful man would ever create this. It is impossible. So where did it come from? It came from God. It came down out of heaven. This is why the Bible is filled with wonderful truths. Because the truths did not originate with any man with any sinful man, but they came from heaven, from our wonderful creator. And as a result of the goodness of the Bible, he wants to observe its testimonies. He says, my soul observes them. He has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He has seen that the word of God is wonderful. Therefore, he wants to conform his life to the wonderful word of God. He wants to observe God's wonderful testimonies, right? If the word is wonderful, then shouldn't we want to be like it? Shouldn't we want to obey it? Shouldn't we want our thoughts to conform to the thoughts of the Bible? Don't we want our steps to be aligned by the word of God and what it says? If it is indeed wonderful, and it is wonderful according to the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 130, the unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. The unfolding of the word of God gives light. Here, the reference is to that of a scroll. A scroll that would be unfolded in order to be read, right? When he's writing this, the Bible is in this form, in the form of a scroll. And when the scroll is unfolded and the worshiper of God reads it with faith, then he receives light. He receives understanding, right? In our day, we might say, when the word of God is opened, the opening of the word of God gives light, We have to open our Bibles and read them in order to gain light and understanding from the Word of God. If our Bibles sit idly on the shelf, if they sit there on the counter throughout the week, then are we going to receive any light from it? Are we going to gain understanding from the Word of God if we're not opening it and if we're not reading it, we are not going to benefit from the wonderful truths found in Scripture. Also, this unfolding must take place in our hearts and in our minds by the Spirit. The Spirit has to open our spiritual eyes so that we can behold wonderful things from God's law. So we must open our Bibles, and then God must open our minds to understand and believe these truths. Naturally, we cannot see. Naturally, we are in darkness. 
Right, The old nature is full of darkness and deceit, but the new man wants to walk in the light. He wants to be on the good and right path. And it is the word of God that guides him in the way. We remember Psalm 119, 105. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word of God gives light when it is opened, when it is unfolded. And when the Spirit teaches us, it gives us light so that we know how to walk in a way pleasing to God, on the proper, straight, and narrow path. Also, he says, it gives understanding to the simple, to the simple man. Not to the wise man, but to the simple man. Here he is acknowledging that he himself is a simple man, a naive man, a man who lacks understanding. He does not entertain this notion that he is the wisest man on the planet earth. This is how many people are. Many, many people believe that they are so wise, that they are so smart, that they are so sophisticated, that they don't need help from anyone else. They don't need help from the word of God. They can figure everything out on their own. Most men entertain some notion of their own superiority over all other people and even over God, and even over God's word. Most believe that they are the wisest person on the earth. And if everyone would listen to them, then they would have it all figured out. They would all benefit if we would sit down and be quiet and listen to them. But this is contrary to the Christian life. The prophet David sees himself as an infant. He sees himself as a naive, simple child who needs to be guided He cannot trust his own mind. He can't trust his own instincts. He cannot trust anyone else. He needs God to help him. He needs God to give him understanding. We must have humility. right? If we don't have humility, we are going to make no progress in the Christian life. No advancement in spiritual things. We must have humility in order to gain true wisdom. The first step of gaining wisdom is admitting that we are fools and that we have no wisdom and that we need God to teach us. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 to 23. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18. says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age... He must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. There he says, if anyone thinks he's wise in this age, in this present sinful age, wise in the estimation of the world, then he must become foolish, foolish in the estimation of the world, so that he might become wise. Because the wisdom of God is foolish to men. Right? If men think we're wise, worldly men, sinful men think we're wise, then God says that we're a fool. But if worldly men think that we're foolish, then God says we're wise. So if we would be wise, we must admit that all of our wisdom, our natural wisdom, all of the wisdom of this world is actually foolishness detestable in the sight 
of God. We must reject all of it, and then we become wise. Because we reject our own ideas, our own opinions, our own thoughts, and we take on the very mind of Christ found in the Word of God. We must be a fool. We must recognize the foolishness of our wisdom, of the wisdom of this world, in order to gain the wisdom of God. We can't hold these things together. They are mutually exclusive. So he admits that he is a simple man. We must admit that we are simpletons so that we will go to the word of God and then when we believe what the Bible says, when we believe what it says about all things, then we become wise. Then we will be informed. Then we will become sophisticated. Not in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God. They will say that we're insane, but God will say that we are wise. And we can become wise. We can gain wisdom if we believe the word of God. Remember what it said in Psalm 119, 98. 98 says, Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I observe your precepts. He has more wisdom than his enemies. He has more wisdom than his teachers. He has more understanding than the aged. And where does he get this understanding from? From the word of God, from the holy scriptures. He believes the word of God, but they don't. Therefore, he exceeds them in terms of true wisdom. And this should be true of us as well. 131, I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Here, he's like an animal, an animal that is parched. When an animal is parched, when it is thirsty, it opens its mouth wide and pants for the water. Those who are thirsty, those who are parched, they cannot wait to have their thirst quenched with cold water. Right? They gulp it down. Right? It runs all down their face as quickly as they can. They're not content with a little sip of water, but they want to drink and drink and drink until their thirst is satisfied. Well, this is how he is for the word of God. He is like a parched animal whose mouth is open wide. This is how he is spiritually for the Bible. He wants more and more and more. He's not content to have a little bit of the Bible, to only have it here and there. He wants it all the time. He doesn't want it for just one day a week. He doesn't want it for just one hour a week. He wants the word of God all the time, more and more and more. Every opportunity to read the Bible, whether alone or with others, this is what he wants more than anything else. Now, there are very few people who love the Bible like this, who have this kind of desire, who have it on their mind in this manner, who are longing to read the Bible like this, who wake up every morning anxious to read the Bible, who can't wait to get home from work, so that they can give their mind to the reading of the word of God. This is the good path that we should walk in. But it is a very rare path. You will not find many who are walking on this path. It is very uncommon to find someone who loves the Bible like this. But this is how we should be. We should open our mouths wide and pant for the word of God. Hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God found in the word of God. And even though this is uncommon, it's even uncommon amongst those who claim to be Christians, we shouldn't let that discourage us. Don't 
let them make us think that we are oddballs because they don't have this desire and we do. No, that is what is odd, that they don't have the desire, right? That they don't have the desire for the word of God, yet they claim to be Christians. That is what it means to be an oddball. But that a person desires the Bible who claims to be a child of God, this is good. So it should not dishearten us that we long for the word of God. Even when we look around and see that there are no one else, that few others love the word of God, that very few are longing to know what the Bible says, that very few want to know and have convictions that come from the Bible. We might begin to think that there's something wrong with us. Why does no one else care? Why does no one else want to know what the Bible says? Why do they have no desire for the word of God? It doesn't bother them at all that what they do is contrary to the Bible. And then they'll say, well, you guys are just a bunch of fanatics, right? You are all a bunch of, of religious zealots because they don't have this desire. But isn't everyone a fanatic in one sense or another? They are fanatics as well. They are zealots as well for sin, zealots and fanatics for fun, for entertainment, for pleasure. They long for those things the way that we should long for the word of God. So don't let them call us fanatics. We should call them fanatics. Why are you a fanatic for sin? Why are you a fanatic for these worthless things of this world when it is good for us to be fanatical for the Bible? That's not a bad thing, to open our mouth wide and pant for the word of God. Psalm 42. Psalm 42, verses 1 to 3. Psalm 42 Verse 1 says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? There, he says, he is like a deer panting for the streams of water. His soul is panting for God. He thirsts for the living God. Well, here he says he thirsts for the word of God, and they are one in the same. To thirst for God is to thirst for his word, because this is where we meet with God. This is where we encounter the living God in his holy word. Verse 132 says, turn to me and be gracious to me after your manner with those who love your name. Here, he wants God to turn to him. He wants God to be gracious to him, to act favorably towards him. Right, God is said to turn away from a man when he is displeased with him. Right, he turns away from a man when that man has his anger and God rejects him. And when a man has God's favor, God turns toward him. Now, of course, he doesn't mean that God is unaware of what is going on. That God is indifferent to us and we need to get God's attention. We need him to turn to us because we need him to see what's happening in our life. That's certainly not the case. Here he's using a human manner of speaking, right? The way that we talk in order to describe the way that God has favor for someone, right? When we turn away from someone, if you turn your back to someone, it shows that you are rejecting them. It shows that you're not pleased with them. It shows that they do not have your favor. But when you turn to someone, when you give them your attention, it shows that you are giving them your favor and that you're going to help them and be a benefit to them. Well, this is what he means here when he wants God to turn to him, to be gracious to him. And it is after the manner of those who love your name. He knows that this is true of God. This is God's custom, 
It is the consistent pattern proven over and over again in the Holy Bible. Those who love the name of the Lord, those who are concerned with honoring God's name, God is gracious to them. God does not forsake them, but God delivers them by his mercy. Isn't this what God does? Isn't this what he has promised to do to all of those who love his name? To turn to them, to be favorable to them? And again, notice here, his manner toward those who love his name, who love the name of God. He doesn't say who love their own name. He doesn't say who love the names of those of this world. But it is God's name, not my name, not your name, but the name of God. Those who love the name of the Lord. Those who seek His glory, not their own glory. These are the ones that God turns toward and that they have His favor. Those who are proud-hearted, those who are trying to build up their own name, God will turn away from them. God will reject them. God will destroy them. But those who love the Lord and love his name and seek to bring glory and honor to God, God will help them, he will sustain them, he will deliver them, he will be gracious to them. And the prophet David knows that God has already done this many times. He did this for Abraham, he did it for Isaac, he did it for Jacob, he did it for Moses and Aaron and Joshua, he did it for all of the righteous. And now... He sees what God did for them, and he wants God to do the same for him. You did it for them. This is your pattern. This was your custom with these righteous men. And now I love your name just as they loved your name. So what you did for them, do them also for me. They loved the name of the Lord, and God was gracious to them. The prophet David loves the name of the Lord. So just as you were gracious to them, so also be gracious to me, just as you did in their day. And does God change? He does not change. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So then what remains true in our own day? God continues today to be gracious towards those who love his name. This is his manner in every generation. He turns toward those who love his name. He is gracious to those who love his name. So if we love the name of the Lord, if we are seeking his glory and not our own, then we can be assured that God will turn to us, that God will be gracious to us, just as he did for David and just as he did of all of the righteous found in the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. This is what the apostle says concerning himself, but then he applies it to everyone else as well. Everyone that the same thing is true of. 2 Timothy 4 verse 6 says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Those who loved his appearing will receive a crown of righteousness just like the Holy Apostle. It's not only for him, it's for everyone who loved his appearing. So if you love his appearing, then there will be a crown of righteousness waiting for you. 
And if you love the name of the Lord, as it says in Psalm 119, verse 132, then God will turn to you and God will be gracious to you. 119, 133 says, Establish my footsteps in your word and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. He wants God to establish his footsteps in his word to keep him walking on the straight and narrow path. He does not want to walk in the crooked paths of sin, but on the straight path of the Lord. We remember in verse 35, Psalm 119, verse 35. He says, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. This is what he means, right? Establish my footsteps in your word means make me walk in the path of your commandments. Make my life right? Consistent with your word. I want to live according to your word, according to your law, according to your commandments. That's the way that I want to live my life in this way. I don't want to live in sin. Also, verse 21, Psalm 119, 21 describes the wicked. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. So the righteous, they want to walk in God's commandments, but the wicked... They wander from God's commandments. They leave the path. They turn aside from the way, and they go and they walk in the pathways of sin. Well, he wants to live a godly life, a life defined by conformity to the word of God. He wants to obey God, and he does not want any sin to have dominion over him. He knows that he cannot walk in the pathway of God's commandment if he's living in sin. Right? How can we walk in the pathway if sin has dominion over us? Because the commandment of God and sin, these things are exclusive, mutually exclusive. It is impossible to live in sin and walk in the pathway of God's commandments because sin is transgression of the word of God. Sin is lawlessness. It is contrary to the law of God. Well, he wants to walk in the pathway, so he doesn't want sin to control him. He doesn't want sin to dominate his life. He does not want his passions, his lust, his flesh to have mastery over him, but rather he wants to have self-control over his passions, over his body, over his desires, so that he does not obey lust, but rather he obeys God. That's what he wants And this is one of the fruits that the Spirit produces in us, according to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, 22 to 24, talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And it says there, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control, right? By the Spirit, the man of God exercises self-control. He has control over his appetites, over his desires, over his body, over his mind, over his tongue, over his flesh. He has control over these things so that they do not lead him into sin. That's what the prophet David is asking, 
for God to give him self-control so that sin will not have dominion or mastery over his life. Now, that he's praying this shows that it is potential. That he's praying this shows that he's not completely set free from his sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be praying this. He wouldn't need to pray it if sin didn't bother him. But because sin remains, because the flesh is still there, because this war is still waging within him, he's praying to God, don't let the flesh control me. Don't let the flesh get the upper hand. Don't let the flesh rule over me so that I commit sins against you. He doesn't want sin to dominate his life. And this is a good prayer. This is a good prayer for us to pray. That God would give us victory over sin. That God would give us more self-control. That iniquity would have no dominion over our life. That our life would not be dominated by some particular sin. Many people will offer prayers to God when it comes to physical things. Their health, their job, their children, their family, right? And there is a place for us to pray for those things. But who's praying like this? Who's praying to God saying, God, do not let sin, do not let any iniquity have dominion over my life. I want to be free from these things. This is to be truly diseased. This is the disease we want to be set free from. It is the disease of sin. And we know from 1 John chapter 5 that if we ask him anything according to his will, he hears us and that he will answer us and give us what we ask for. Well, we know that God wants us to live free from sin. We know that he doesn't, that we should not have sin dominating our life, being a master over us. So we should ask God for it. We should pray with faith And this is something that God will grant to us. He will grant to us more and more self-control, more and more victory over sin. Again, not complete victory in this life. We're always going to have to deal with sin. But God will grant to us more victory over sin if we're asking him and praying to him and then doing those things necessary to overcome sin. So we should be praying daily. Lord, do not let sin dominate me, have dominion over me today. Now, the world doesn't think like this. The world is in the opposite. The world loves it. They want sin to dominate them. They love being slaves to sin. They think slavery to sin is the greatest thing in the world, and that slavery to God is legalism. Slavery to God is, it would be a horrible life to live. But we shouldn't be like that. Jesus says in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. That's what he doesn't want to be true of him. He does not want to be enslaved to sin. Also, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 to 19. says, These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from those who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. This is what the prophet David knows. Whatever overcomes a man, this is what he is enslaved to. Well, he doesn't want to be overcome by sin, 
He wants to be overcome by God. He wants God's spirit to overcome him so that he is enslaved to God, enslaved to righteousness, and instead of being enslaved to sin. We don't want to be a slave of corruption. That is what the world is, slaves of corruption, but we should not be slaves of sin. Sin should not dominate our lives in this way. Psalm 119, 134. Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may keep your precepts. What inevitably happens when we live a godly life? When we are praying and pursuing this, Lord, let no sin have dominion over me. Lord, I don't want to be controlled by sin. I don't want to be controlled in this way. I want to live a godly life. I want to live a righteous life. I want to exercise self-control. Well, when we seek to live a godly life and don't let sin dominate our lives, then we will have our naysayers, our critics, our detractors, our persecutors. They will rise up and begin to criticize us. They will rise up and begin to persecute us. They'll say all manner of evil against us falsely. Those who are dominated by sin will persecute those who don't want to be dominated by sin. The life of the righteous will be in stark contrast to the life of the wicked. Right? If they are slaves of sin and we are slaves of righteousness, isn't this going to be manifested in many different ways? It's going to be manifested all the time by what we do, by what we say, by how we live, it's going to be evident that we are not like them. If sin will have no dominion over us, then we're going to watch the way that we're living. We're going to watch and make sure that we're living a godly life. We're going to avoid certain things. We're going to avoid certain places because we don't want to be dominated by sin. We're going to be saying, I don't want to go to those places. right? I don't want to look at those things. I don't want to be around those kinds of people. I don't want to talk the way that they talk. I don't want to live the way that they live. They're controlled by sin, but I don't want to be controlled by sin. I want to be controlled by the Spirit. And when that is our desire and aim in life, then we will be persecuted. We will be persecuted. Whenever we take a stand for the sake of righteousness, there will be persecution. It says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted, right? Because when we're desiring to live a godly life, inevitably, we have to take a stand. Inevitably, what we're doing is going to rub someone the wrong way. It's going to come into conflict with someone else when they invite us to go to the bar with them. And we say, no, I can't do that. When they invite us to go to the game with them on the Lord's Day, and we say, no, it's the Lord's Day, I'm going to go worship God. They're going to, well, what, are you a legalist? What's wrong with you? Why don't you want to go? They're going to say those kinds of things to us. And then we will have our oppressors. The righteous man will have suffering, persecution, oppression. He will be mocked and ridiculed for living a godly life. Well, when that happens, we cannot give up. We can't let their taunts overcome us so that we turn away from the Lord. Right? That's what he's praying for. Redeem me from their oppression because I want to keep your precepts. Don't let them get me down. Don't let them keep me from living a godly life. Don't let me give up and don't let me compromise with them. But rather, I want to live a godly life. Deliver me from their oppression so that I can obey your precepts. Either take them out or get them away from me so that they're not doing this. Or if they remain there, give me the power to overcome them so that I can do your will. Verse 135. Make your face 
shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Here, he's alluding to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 to 27. This is the Aaronic blessing. The blessing that the high priest was to pronounce over the people. Numbers chapter 6, Numbers chapter 6, verse 22 to 27. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel, you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. There, the Lord make his face shine on you, and the Lord be gracious to you. This is what he wants, the blessing of God upon his life. He wants this more than anything else in the world. Because he knows if God is on his side, if God is blessing him, then what else matters? Right? If God is for us, then what else matters in this life? Who can be against us? It doesn't matter who oppresses us if God is on our side. In the end, it's all going to work out in our benefit and in our favor. Sure, we may have suffering for a little bit. We may have some light momentary afflictions. But ultimately, those are going to give way to eternal glory and eternal honor. This is what it says in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God is for us, Who can be against us? If God is blessing us, then who can curse us? They may rail at us. They may curse us in that way, but it's not going to land. It's not going to have any effect on us because God is the one who is blessing us. If God's face is shining upon us, then what can any man do to me? What can any demon do to me? What can Satan himself do to me if God's face is shining upon him? This is what he knows. He wants God's blessing on his life. He understands that everything must come from the Lord. Every good gift comes from above. Every blessing comes from God. The blessing of God saves us from our sin, and the blessing of God abides with us so that we are sanctified and we grow and we love God as a result. And that's what he wants, for God to bless him. And notice here, he wants the blessing of God in relationship to teaching. Teach me your statutes. For God's face to shine upon him is for God to teach him his 
statutes. He's not seeking the blessing of long life, of prosperity, of fame, of fortune. That's what many people want. When they want God to bless them, they want God to give them all the things they want in this world. They want lots of money, a big house, happy, healthy children. They want long life. And again, there is a place for us to pray for those things in the right context and in the right way. But ultimately, what he wants is not those things. He wants spiritual blessings. And he knows that he needs God to teach him his statutes. The blessing of God found in understanding the will of God. When God teaches a man his statutes, then that man is blessed by the Lord. That's the blessing that we should seek above all other blessings. 136, Psalm 119, 136. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. The prophet David knows and confesses that he is not a perfect man. He knows that this is not true of him yet. He wants it to be true. He wants to be perfect. He doesn't want sin to have dominion over him. He wants to reject all sin. But as long as the flesh remains, he will still fail to keep God's law. Already he has prayed, Lord, let no iniquity have dominion over me. Again, that he's praying for this shows that he has not obtained it perfectly. That sin is still there harassing him. Sin is still bothering him. And we know that the Bible teaches that in this life, even Christians, even those who are true believers, none of them will obtain perfection in this life. But all remain uh, they, they, they remain uh, in part with the flesh, and sin remains a constant reality even for the child of God in this life. And anyone who teaches that they never sin, you know that a person is a big fat liar, okay? They're a liar, they're not telling the truth, and anyone can see that both from the Bible and reality. Look at them and you know that they're not telling you the truth. And any teaching that promotes this perfectionism, we know it comes straight from the devil, and it is not true. This because it contradicts the holy word of God. Such as 1 Kings 8, 46. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin. So says King Solomon. There is no man who does not sin. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And in that statement, who does the apostle John include? Himself. Right? If we say we have no sin, himself included, then we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And he's talking to believers. He's talking to the church. The Apostle Paul, Philippians 3.12, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Even the Apostle Paul says, He's not a perfect man. He had not obtained a per perfection yet. He's going to one day, and that's what he's striving for, right? That's what he wants to live for, but he had not obtained it yet in this life. No one in this life obtains perfection. Even the most advanced, mature Christian will still break the law of God. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 clearly teaches this. Romans chapter 7, and 
Let's pick up in verse 14. Romans 7, 14 says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. There, He's not saying that he doesn't have any responsibility or blame. He's just making a contrast between the new man and the old man. The old man is sin, but the old man is still a part of him, and he's to blame for his own sin. It's not sin acting independently of him. He's the one that's doing it, but he's just making this contrast between the old and the new. Because who we are in Christ is the new man, yet sin still remains. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. This is what the prophet David is describing in Psalm 119, 136. He delights in the law of God. He wants to do the law of God. He wants to keep the law of God. But he finds another law at work in the members of his body, waging war against the law in his mind, waging war against the inner man, waging war against the spirits. The law of sin is in his members. And with those members, he breaks the law of God. Here, it is his eyes that he is referring to. He looks at those things that he should not look at. My eyes, he said, shed streams of water because they, my eyes, do not keep your law. This is why he cries. He wants to honor God with his body perfectly, but because the flesh remains, he breaks God's law with his eyes. And then what does he do? He sheds streams of water because they, his eyes, do not keep the law of God. He's not happy about it. He's not indifferent to sin. Though it remains, he wants to be rid of it. He's not making excuses for his sin. He isn't just shrugging it off and saying, well, you know, we're all sinners after all, and no one's perfect, and it's not a big deal, and uh, God's going to be gracious to us. Though it is true that no one is perfect. Though it is true that we all sin. He doesn't use these types of things to justify his sin to promote his sin, to be indifferent to his sin, to be calloused toward his sin. That's what unbelievers do. They say those kinds of things all the time. Well, no one's perfect, right? We all have our sin. And they use those statements to justify committing more sin, to justify their laziness, to justify their indifference, to say that they don't have to overcome sin, but they can just be content in it. Is that what he's doing here? Of course not. He's upset about it. 
He's grieving about it. So much so that he says, my eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. This is the attitude of the believer. He wants to be completely set free from his sin. And he is greatly bothered when he sins against God, when he uses his members to sin against God. And isn't that a shameful thing? That the eyes that we use to read the word of God, that we will use those same eyes to break God's law? The eyes that we use to read God's law will then be used to break the law of God. It's a contradiction. And this is what he knows. And that's why he is so upset. He's so bothered by it that he sheds streams of water from those eyes because he has not obeyed God with them. Do we have this attitude? Are we grieved over our sin? When was the last time we wept over our sins like this? When was the last time our eyes shed streams of water because of the sin that persists in us? When was the last time we said, like Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? When do we do that? Do we have this kind of a tender, soft heart towards sin? Or are we indifferent to these things? This is what it takes for us to reject our sin. We have to have hatred for sin, and we have to be grieved over our sin. Not like a hypocrite, Right? Not doing it as a show to be seen by men, but in the privacy of our own home, to weep before God over our sin, to have such a soft and tender heart toward the Lord. Wasn't this the case with the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, verses 13 and 14? It says there, the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. He beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Well, we need to do that at the moment of our conversion. But as long as sin remains in us, then don't we need to continue doing that throughout the course of our Christian life? Beating our breasts, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Saying, God, I'm a wretched man. Who will deliver me? Lord, please deliver me from this. Our eyes shedding streams of water because they don't keep the law of God. This is the way that we should be. We should have this kind of attitude and pray that God would give us such a tender heart toward his word that is sensitive to sin and that grieves whenever we grieve the Holy Spirit. Right? That's the way that we should be. Whenever we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, we should grieve when we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Then we'll want to overcome our sin. And then we will want to walk in the pathway of righteousness. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you, Lord, thanking you that you have given to us your word. And Lord, confessing that, Lord, we know that we are still not perfect. Lord, that we still have the flesh. Lord, that we still need to overcome our sin. Lord, we pray that sin would not be master over us. Lord, that no iniquity would have dominion over us. And Lord, we know that this can only be true. It will only come about if you are gracious to us. Lord, by your strength and power, because on our own, through our own strength, 
we cannot overcome any sin. Lord, even the smallest infraction, we would not be able to overcome on our own. It is only through your grace and mercy, Lord, only by your power that we can be delivered from sin. And Lord, we pray that you would deliver us. Lord, we know that you have forgiven us. Lord, that we are justified in your sight. Lord, we know that one day we will be perfectly set free from our sin when we are glorified at the coming of Christ. But now, Lord, in this life, from our conversion to our death, Lord, we want to daily overcome sin. Lord, we want to progress in our sanctification. Lord, we want to be more faithful to you, more obedient to you, living a more godly life, having more victory over sin. And so, Father, we pray that you would grant that to us. And Lord, when we do sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, we pray that you would give to us this kind of a heart, Lord, this attitude, Lord, a sensitive heart, Lord, one that is not indifferent to sin, one that does not easily make excuses for it and justify it, but one that hates it, Lord, who weeps and grieves over his state. Lord, how can we not, seeing that the flesh remains within us, when that which is contrary to you, that, that hates you, Lord, it still abides within us in our members. Lord, we truly are wretched men because of our sin. So, Lord, we pray that we would see that, that we would recognize how miserable sin is, and that, Lord, we would want to overcome it and that we would want to be obedient to you. Lord, teach us from your word. Lord, make simple men wise. Lord, make fools those who have your understanding. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to walk in the pathway of your commandments. Lord, establish our feet in your word. Lord, so that we do not turn to the left or to the right, but that we walk in the straight paths of the Lord. So Lord, give to us this grace and mercy. And Lord, be with us in all things. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.